Border Patrol agents face very unique and difficult situations in their daily work. Whether it's arresting dangerous criminals or rescuing those in peril, that kind of trauma can start to weigh on a person's mental health. To help lift morale and put a friendly face on its community engagement efforts, Border Patrol has launched its Support Canine program. To learn more about it and the four-legged agents who are part of the program, I have the chance to speak with Robert Hess, Supervisory Border Patrol agent and Support Canine handler, along with his partner, Chappie. Come say hi. Come here. I know it's Monday, but say hi. Okay. All right. Down. All right. That was great. Thanks for that. All right, Robert, why don't you tell me a little bit about how this program got started? So all the last couple of years, the Border Patrol has seen an unprecedented number of deaths, line of duty deaths, off-duty deaths, suicides, and just in general, a lot of issues. Most recently, at least in the RGV sector, we've experienced uh, a couple of suicides in the line of duty death. And during one of those suicides, uh, I was asked to assist with a canine, a support canine that was brought in from OFO, a dog by the name of Izzy. And Izzy's handler's name is Monica, and Monica is an OFO officer. And I had the, uh, the opportunity to be with them and kind of see what they were doing and uh, just kind of taking mental note on the effectiveness to see uh, exactly how it worked. And uh, I know prior to that, the ball was already rolling with with the border patrol they were already trying to make that happen but uh definitely at least in my mind it cemented the the importance of these canines because i got to see it firsthand how effective they were with the families uh, that were going through tough times yeah that was going to be my next question that first time you know that you were out in the field and you were able to bring chappy or any of the other dogs by the guard stations what was the reactions that you got Better than I expected. Uh, I mean, we, we are law enforcement. Uh, we got some, some salty dogs in the Border Patrol. But honestly, I've been overwhelmed by the support. Chappie is a poodle, which doesn't necessarily, uh, it's not the kind of dog you usually see in the Border Patrol. We usually have a, uh, the German Shepherd or, or that type of a dog that's much more aggressive. And Chappie is not aggressive. Uh, Chappie is a, a very kind and uh, wants to be petted, wants to be with people. And uh, so I would say overall, the the reception has been very positive at the station and as well as, I mean, I can't help but look, he's kind of all over the place in in social media. So even even the comments, for the most part, are are very positive. Yeah. So what is it in uh, what does this employ? Does this mean you're just you go around from guard station to guard station? And, you know, are these scheduled visits? Are these impromptu visits? And, you know, do you just go in and just spend some time with the officers and talk with them? I mean, you're a chaplain, so that's your (laughs) that's part of your job as well. What does this entail? So, yeah, on the the day to day, uh, we we try to schedule what stations we're going to go to are are are. Uh, mandate was to go to each each shift, each station uh, throughout our, our sector, and uh, introduce Chappie to, to all the all the all the stations, and that uh, that's the primary primary uh, exposure I get that the agents are are getting right now to Chappie. Critical incidents take uh, take the first seat though. Not everything can can be scheduled right. Things get changed, and things have already gotten changed uh, at the last minute multiple times. Uh, he's already participated in. And a funeral. We've gone to do home visits to some families that uh, either lost a loved one or an agent uh, that that died, an agent himself that died here recently in uh, RGB. So those those definitely take a priority to to see in the stations. But he he's in high demand. I get I get requests all the time from all the stations. They would love to see Chappie, and 
most uh, places where I go, they, they ask me to just, just to leave him there with them to spend time with him. Uh, so he, he's, he's enjoying all the love that he's getting. Yeah, I I wanted to ask, as somebody who views all the press releases from CBP, as you mentioned, yeah, there are some there's some dark things that happen down there, uh, especially at the southern border. How do you, do you all have a decision process on? Wow, you know, we should probably head out there because you know X occurred, or I guess you know I don't want you to say what takes precedent over different horrible events, but uh, how, how does that decision process go? Uh, it's not it's not really an easy process, and it's super hard to say no. Uh, you know, we want to be everywhere and help as much as we can. And luckily, we haven't had, you know, competing critical incidents. Uh, so I, I don't know that I can really say what, what the precedence is going to be. I know that we'll do our best to be where, where we need to be. And where needed, we, we'll just divide our time and uh, try to hit, uh, uh, e- even with visiting the stations, I'm trying to to hit multiple stations, uh, multiple uh, musters on on any given day, which can be taxing, but uh, there sure is a lot of benefits to to making people uh, aware of Chappie and, and what he does. Yeah, and as somebody with your experience, what are some of the emotional issues or the you know the the main emotional issues that you see in border patrol uh, members? What are you know some of the main issues that they deal with after witnessing pretty traumatic stuff? Well, that's that's a tough question because the answer is all, all over the place. You know, it's it's an individual, and everybody deals with with trauma in different ways. And definitely not not getting over past traumas kind of multiplies the the effect of current traumas. Um, so, uh, what, one of the benefits that I'm seeing to 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 the support canine program in general is that agents are they're they're revisiting some of those things that they haven't taken care of in the past. Yeah, because Chappie probably lets them bring their guard down a little bit and, you know, help help everybody feel a little bit more comfortable. Exactly. And I, I think if, if there's any one message that I would want uh, our, our agents and our personnel to know is is that that's his purpose is to bring calm, to help uh, people feel like they're in a safe place. One of the, the big takeaways that I got from Monica and, and Izzy, she, she they do some work with, uh, with the FBI and in interviews with children. And Monica says that she... When she takes Izzy into to be with the children when they're about to be interviewed, is uh, she just tells the kiddos that uh, Izzy's an officer and they can tell Izzy anything they they want and and I think if you tell just about anybody that scenario, it makes perfect sense that that would help a child feel calm and safe and uh, it's the same thing for us. It, we, we we want to act like we're tougher than kids, right? But we're not. We're, we we have the same struggles and. Obviously, we're we're older and have some experience and hope, hopefully some wisdom, but the dog helps provide that safe space, uh, provide that calm sensation that allows people to to open up and not be so guarded, like you said. And what about you personally? Does it help to have a, a, a companion along as you're going around talking to guards about heavy topics like this? Yeah, well, he doesn't help me drive and he's not much of a conversationalist <laughs> on our drive, but uh, man, I love having him around. Uh, he he is all personality, and a lot of what's been going on is just kind of getting to know one another and feeling uh, uh, kind of identifying what what he wants and and how to uh, how to work with him. 
Uh, a lot of the training that we did revolved around that just uh, socialization, being around strangers, going to the airports, uh, just going to different locations where he was exposed to a lot of different people, a lot of noises. Uh, we even went to uh, Knott's Berry Farm, it was an amusement park. So just the noise, the roller coasters and kids screaming and having a great time, just a lot of distractions for him. So for me, it was a good opportunity to to see uh, how he reacts in those kind of situations. And for me personally, uh, you asked how it affects me. It's it's made me more introspective. It's helped me kind of take a second look at why why we do what we do and uh, feel what we feel. It's been good for me. Yeah, that was going to be one of my last questions there. Is Was there any specialty training for Chappie just having to go into areas that, like you said, are either crowded and noisy or some are out in the middle of nowhere? How does Chappie react to the different environments, I guess? He does really well. So all the Border Patrol initially uh, purchased five dogs and trained five handlers. We all went out to California, uh, and it was really more to train us. The dogs have already had extensive training from the time that they're eight weeks old. They started getting trained as guide dogs for the blind, and uh, all five of those dogs promoted to the Border Patrol and became support canines. So they received additional training on top of the training they received as guide dogs. Um, extensive training. So from eight weeks old to Chappie's two and a half years old, he's been getting trained. And uh, as far as translating that to the field, we've had some interesting moments where we learned stuff that we didn't already know. Um, Chappie doesn't like clapping, so uh, he'll he'll start barking. So that's something we're working on. But for the most part, he, he just goes with the flow. And uh, the training that we received at, at our academy was, was very beneficial. They uh, highlighted the need for the for us, the handlers, to to not get stressed out because the dogs are going to feel it through the leash. I believe it. I, the the more relaxed I am, and the more I trust him, uh, the more relaxed he is, and the more he's able to do what what he was trained to do. I want to. I've been in the border patrol for 23 years. It'll be 24 this summer. For those who struggle with this this activation, this new pilot program, I ask that you give it a chance. I've been an agent for 23 years and. We've come a long way. I've, I've heard, I, I probably shouldn't read the comments in, in some of the, the Facebook posts, but I do. And uh, I struggle with those who, who say that the, the Border Patrol doesn't care because we have come a, come a long, long way in that, in that area. It used to be where it was just the Border Patrol we took care of. We've always taken care of one another. But now we're seeing uh, the agency take steps to, to make sure that, that people are taken care of. And the biggest example, I've participated in a few uh, police weeks. And uh, that's where it's definitely magnified. If you've ever participated in that, you know just how much the Border Patrol takes care of its people in, in that venue. And uh, it's no different at, at, at the station and the sector levels. So I would just ask that. Uh, give give these uh, these dogs a chance. There's, there's five of them now. There'll be one in uh, San Diego. We'll make a sixth dog. And uh, I, I, I foresee them doing a lot of good. Uh, I've already seen hearts change. Uh, with regard to to this program, and I hope that that continues. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension, 
Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines my mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that My life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about 
positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we have been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if 
I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, <laughs> Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling. It, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.